BIOS is not cable. We're wired differently, which means you can get the fastest Internet available with equal upload and download speeds from 50 to 500 megs. So you can upload 200 photos before your favorite song is finished. Click the ad and switch to Files today to get our best offer ever. Block Talk Radio. Sing through my Goddess Advocates, and welcome to Voices of the Sacred Feminine. Thanks for tuning in tonight. I know you have lots of choices, and I know you're busy. And I hope you tune in every night if you can, or sometime afterwards uh, if you listen from the archives. I hope you've been enjoying the summer series, uh, Sacred Knowledge, Sacred Destinations, and Men and Goddess. And how is Mercury Retrograde treating you? You know, I was doing okay till Monday night's special show. Almost didn't happen. Um, I had a technical glitch about 15 minutes before I went on the air with Francesca Gentile, the diva of divine relationships. And somehow, uh, not only did I almost not get on uh, the Internet to do the show, but the opening music for the show didn't even come on. But alas, I employed the tenacity of Sepmet and pushed forward, and it all worked out, thanks to my wonderful husband who saved the day and got my computer up and running just in the nick of time. I didn't have open music, but hey, maybe nobody even noticed, I'm not sure. And just in case you're new to the show, let me explain how this all works best. Um, that way you don't miss any great shows. Uh, might I suggest to you, you go to Blog Talk and click on the Follow Me button on my show page so that you never miss the weekly show. You'll get reminders of who my guests are, are you know, coming up and uh, when life gets busy. You, that way you stay in the loop and you know what's going on and you're aware of what goddess advocates are talking about around the water cooler this week. And more important, you won't miss anything important or provocative or enlightening that my wonderful guests impart to listeners all the time. And while you're there, please mark the show as a favorite. I'd really appreciate it. And as always, my thanks and gratitude to all my new listeners and old listeners. You are truly, truly, truly gas in my tank. Um, the show's been called The Treasure Trove, maybe one of the best goddess shows on the airwaves, and that's music to my ears. To know what I'm doing is making a difference to you out there means everything. And uh, when I get an email from someone in some little town in some red state who feels so totally isolated and alone, and they say my show is their lifetime, uh, their lifeline, well, you know what? Those messages are gifts from Goddess herself, keeping me here with you every week, bringing you stuff I think you might like to hear or stuff you have to hear. So thank you all very much for your loyal listenership and being a part of the Voices of the Sacred, uh, uh, Voices of the Sacred Feminine family. 
I'm truly glad you value what my wonderful guests have to say. And my thanks goes out tonight to Abigail McBride for the use of her music tonight. That piece you were listening to uh, was a snippet from her piece called Let the Way Be Open. We're going to actually be talking to Abigail in about an hour. Uh, my show with her, the topic is Music, Magic, and Mystery, Exploration of the Fire Circle of Alchemy. Sounds juicy, doesn't it? I can't wait myself. And because there's so little time and so many wonderful guests who need to be heard, tonight is another double feature. Uh, At the top of the hour, in just a moment or two, before Abigail McBride's uh, show on ritual magic and alchemy, we have an old friend of mine on the show, a priestess of Isis I've known for a very, very long time. She's the Right Reverend Lorian Vignier, the foundress of Isis Oasis Retreat Center and Sanctuary up in Geyserville, California, which is about 90 minutes north of San Francisco, if memory serves me right. You know, I've been going to Isis Oasis since I was a very young and green dedicant to Isis, uh, truly a newbie priestess back in the early 1990s. And if you haven't heard of Isis Oasis, you must check it out. It would be the perfect place, uh, actually, to use as a Northern California base if you wanted uh, to maybe use my book, Sacred Places of Goddess, and do a West Coast pilgrimage. Because you can actually use the book and go all the way down the coast, but you have to start up there at Isis Oasis and stay at the sanctuary and go to the Isis Temple and the theater and uh, see the wonderful old oak tree, all of that stuff you'll be able to see on the Internet. So do yourself a favor, Google Isis Oasis, uh, which we're going to be talking about in more depth during this conversation with Lorian. Uh, but let uh, me tell you more about this important leader in the goddess community because she has dedicated her life to Isis Oasis, to Isis, um, to helping rebirth uh, the goddess community in our time, and she has one of those incredibly interesting life stories that is very easy to see and understand was certainly divinely guided. Um, she says she was born 78 years ago in New York City. Her family migrated to L.A. in the 40s. She says she escaped Los Angeles for San Francisco in the 50s during the Beatnik area. Uh, she opened up a poet, uh, poets and painters supply store called the Paint Pot. Uh, there she started her career in enamel on copper. Uh, she decorated jewelry and many other uh, utilitarian um, objects. Uh, she had her own gallery and a factory with 40 employees at the time. Uh, she sold everything to buy Isis Oasis in, in 1978 when wild animals were banned in San Francisco because she had six ocelots. We'll hear more about that, too, because she still has these uh, these wonderful felines. And then after visiting Lady Olivia Robertson, she's one of the founders of um, uh, the Fellowship of Isis, the International Goddess Organization uh, at Clonical Castle in Ireland. Um, Lorian visited Lady Olivia in 81. She became a priestess of Isis, and um, she eventually uh, morphed into, you know, her work there up at Isis Oasis morphed into the Temple of Isis. They have uh, services up there every Sunday. Uh, she certainly all the time has workshops and seminars. Uh, Fellowship of Isis Convocations. Uh, recently, she, uh, they opened a restaurant on the grounds called Mummy's Kitchen. So cute. Mummy's Kitchen, M-U-M-M-Y, featuring Egyptian-Asian fusion cuisine. Uh, 
She's also a writer. Uh, besides uh, writing the book, The Goddess Bade Me Do It, she writes plays and songs. Uh, and they also do dinner theater on weekends there. Wow, new stuff going on. I can't wait to hear more. So, Lorian, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. It's uh, <laughs> nice to talk to you and remember when you were kind of like a a lotus just opening, and now you're so fully bloomed. It's beautiful. <laughs> oh, thank you, Lorian. That's so sweet. Well, you know, um, you were, you know, you were one of my early mentors. You know, a, a priestess of Isis, so certain of herself and confident that you know Isis was going to, you know, lead her down the, you know, her, you know, down the path to her destiny. Um, you know, you have such an incredible story about Isis, and, and uh, you know, I could hear it ten million times. Why don't you Why don't you share it with our listeners? Because I'm sure they'll just be intrigued. Well, yes, <laughs> I, I'm intrigued sometimes too. I can hardly imagine that it all happened. But <laughs> uh, you know, uh, when I came to San Francisco without anything, twenty dollars in my pocket. And a dress that smelled of smoke because everything I had had burned down. Like, you know, numbers of people have these tragedies. And uh, somehow you rise from the ashes. And I did. And, uh, you know, I I got a job. And then I opened the little shop called the Paint Pot. And then I the only thing I saved out of the ashes was my little kiln that um, I took with me. And it actually, in the end, was my total salvation for making money because I started uh, to make um, enamel jewelry and giftware while I was sitting in my little shop selling these artist supplies. And um, and they became very popular, and so popular, in fact, that um, I was able to move out of the, oh, the, basement uh, apartment that I had. It was kind of way underground, actually, in uh, North Beach where all the beatniks were, and I was able to move into a beautiful uh, Victorian house near the hippie area, you know, near the hate. And, uh, but I was always seeing these rather peripherally because I was really a hard worker, and I, I worked a lot on my enamels and made beautiful things. I have to say, enameling was a beautiful kind of medium for so brilliant and never uh, fades or disappears, you know, as enamel on mm-hmm. copper. And I used to say that I was kind of an alchemist. I would take copper and make it into gold. So I was able to make money. <laughs> and um, and then um, I, at my house, my Victorian house, that's where I was working. I began to need help. And so I wished for a place on Isis Street because I saw one as I was driving by. And then, you know, soon after I I felt like I needed to get an actual workshop for my work because I needed to hire people. So I answered an ad one day that was in the San Francisco Chronicle. And the realtor said, "Um, this, uh, it was an ad for a workshop and two flats. And he said it was on Isis Street. And having wished for it, and here was the realtor that said it was there, and it's only one block long in the entire city, 
Well, I knew that was going to be the place that I would be. So, well, Lorian, let me let me just ask you a quick question. Well, did were you yeah. a priest? Were you a priestess of Isis yet? Did you know no, who Isis was? No, I wasn't. Okay. I, know not, I knew about Isis because, as an artist, I always admired and and sort of studied a bit of ancient Egypt. You know, I love the Egyptian artwork and the papyrus and all the images that they had. And I was always a little bit interested in the occult, but actually, I was not a priestess. I was on my way to being one, however, because having moved into the Isis Street place, all manifestations of mystery happened to me. Um, papyrus grew in the backyard, and I'd never planted it. You know, papyrus is, you know, an Egyptian plant. And and uh, I don't know how that came there. And my ocelots started to breed. They're very difficult to breed. I had some ocelots, a pair of them, and then pretty soon I had six of them in the backyard. And um, I I was able to get from that um, Isis Street. I was doing so well, and I needed more space. So I was able to um, buy a large factory building that was backed up into the garden of the Isis Street property, and I had envisioned uh, doing that, and sure enough, I was able to purchase that building and uh, knock out the concrete wall that was in the back, knock it down, it made a nice deck, and and uh, there I can go from Isis Street right into this large workshop where I could have, I ended up with 40 employees making the jewelry and giftware that I designed. But well, you, know, you just had yeah. incredible—you had incredible powers of manifestation. Surely, <laughs> I, I, I know, and I, I attribute it all to the goddess. At, at some point, I knew just being on Isis Street, saying, using that in my um, stationery and talk—you know, telling people where I lived and whatever. My license plate were, was the address twenty-two Isis, and I—I um, I guess I began to realize. There is some power in that goddess that uh, is connecting with me and guiding me to what I was going to do next. And I look upon her as that kind of um, um, goddess that can um, motivate you and and guide you to your next destiny, whatever it's going to be and whatever it's supposed to be. And I think uh, in some way I always think she was kind of like, watching me and, and I worked really hard and maybe I would <laughs> I I could come up with uh you know some I would do something that was important to her. I even um I remember finding two posters in the hate that said is and I they were great big IS and I put them together and, and they said ISIS in, the, in my <laughs> building and it was just sort of all these little things that happened one after the other. I Describe a lot of them in my book, uh, The Goddess Bade Me Do It. <laughs> so um, there I was, uh, you know, in San Francisco, and I actually had these ocelots in the backyard that were breeding. So there, I wanted more room, and I, I wished for the house that was joining the Isis Street in the backyard. There was a fence. And um, I talked to the people over that fence, and I asked them if ever going to move and they said they were so I ended up with that house too so I had three properties that all joined together in the backyard each one on a different street 
Isis Street, 12th Street, and Folsom Street. And I ended up fixing up that house. It became kind of a famous house in the city. Uh, at that time, I was also doing a bit of stained glass, and I, I made four, three windows uh, that, that were on the street, all of Egyptian decor and design. And, um, and the house, is, I painted it in three shades of purple, and it ended up in uh, a, a book called uh, Painted Ladies, uh, which meant uh, houses in San Francisco that were painted very beautifully, and I did three shades of purple, which is my favorite color. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I was happily living there when San Francisco made this law, and I also had a gallery downtown San Francisco selling all my things. So I really had a lot invested in living in San Francisco and being there, but the city who's supposed to be named after St. Francis you know, the father, uh, uh, you know, loving animals and that sort of thing, were sending all the animals, they weren't cats, dogs, or canaries, out of out of San Francisco. And uh, so I looked in the paper one day, <laughs> once again, and this time under country properties, because I thought maybe I should retire into the country and bring my off-lots there. And I found this ad, and it said, church. And lodge with you know a dozen rooms and commercial kitchen and an, and a turn of the century house and I decided to come out to see it. Now it was priced you know quite high. I didn't know if I could ever afford such a thing, but I came out here to see it and it was rather unkempt um, when I came. I the grass was over my head and. I came to this house, this antiquated house, and knocked on the door, and this lady answered it and said, told me if I really wanted to buy the house, I should buy it from the real owner, who had been her husband, but he had become a woman. <laughs> and and he had, um, she had, a restaurant in San Francisco. And I asked her which one, and lo and behold, the restaurant was right across the street from my purple house. <laughs> so it was an amazing, um, you know, discovery. And I will say that as I walked up the stairs to look at the property and see uh, the building that they described as a church, I had been reading, I was just reading Moon Magic, you know, by Dion Fortune. Yes. That many, many, um, many women have found Isis by reading her somehow. You know, they be, become connected with a, with a goddess uh, by reading works of Dion Fortune. And so as I went up the stairs and, and saw this, this beautiful hall, I decided this had to be my place. So um, I went back to the city and stopped right in that very day in front of the restaurant where I had eaten some quite often and... Uh, but never had seen um, a person that I might have thought had been a man and turned into a woman. But she was there that day. <laughs> and I got to meet her and told her uh, she was like six feet two, redheaded, and uh, with bangles and, you know, bracelets and quite an interesting person, actually. And uh, I told her I lived right across the street in the Purple House. And if she ever wanted to sell it for less, to let me know. And it wasn't long before I heard from her. And she offered me the property at 100000 less than was asked for it. 
and um, I couldn't refuse. So that's how Isis Oasis came into being. Wow, what a, what a, what, you know, it's like when, when things are meant to be, it's like the goddess just lines them right up there for you and all you gotta do is just follow the breadcrumbs, you know? Um, exactly. And, and you know, I tell and people I, that. <laughs> well, and, and you know what, I've also figured out too, and I mean, you know, it took me a while to figure this out, even as simple as it's probably going to sound. It seems like when you feel like you're pushing those boulders uphill and life is really difficult, I've really started to realize that maybe it's because you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing or meant to be doing, you know. You're supposed to be taking that path that, uh, you know, that she has set for you that's usually um, less problematic, I think. <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> well, now, in, yeah. in, 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 is it, uh, didn't Isis Oasis used to be a Baha'i uh, retreat yes. center or something? it was. And, and the uh, energy here definitely is still here. The Baha'is believe in nine um, faiths, you know, religion, or nine prophets, really. All the prophets that they believe in that came from God were masculine, were patriarchal religions. And um, so I felt that I was supposed to come here and bring the feminine energy in. And I actually feel sometimes that the, the couple that started the Baha'i faith here on this property, because this is where it began, actually, the Baha'i faith. And uh, I went to the 100th anniversary of the world religions, where Olivia, by the way, uh, put on a wonderful pageant. And the Baha'is were very prevalent there. Um, but anyway, they, I, you know, they were started really in this location um, from 100 years ago. So... And now uh, you're, you're continuing, you know, a, a spirituality of love and tolerance and acceptance. Um, you know, as, as, you know, they may have left, but you continue it on in the name of Goddess. Yes, I, I do. And I, I think it was meant to be. It was like, um, it needed to be here. The land, uh, actually, uh, just, you know, it's wanted it to be here. Um, and I sometimes think that um, the tree here, by the way, you mentioned that the tree was an oak tree. It's actually a Douglas fir. Ah. It's 600 years old. And this year I made it into a heritage tree of uh, the county. I had to go to the county, and they came out to look at it and said, yes, this is indeed going to be a heritage tree, so it shall be protected henceforth. And... Um, so that's People wonderful. can come to see it, yes, and it's an amazing tree. And I think it has this sort of energy that um, it is within it. You know, Olivia would always say that trees have hearts, and I actually got a stethoscope, and I can tell you it does seem to have a heart. <laughs> and you can hear it beating. Uh, well, you know, in a, in a sense, aside from the Isis temple that, that you have built there as well, um, you know, it feels like it's sort of the center of things, you know, um, dare I say mm-hmm. the heart of things, all the ceremonies that, have, that people have chosen to do under the tree rather than in the beautiful theater or in the temple. Yes. I mean, it calls to you. I mean, you feel like you're, I don't know, almost in the mother's embrace when you're under that tree. Yeah, the way it the way it is built, the way it's holding out its arms. I always have a statue of Isis under it with her wings, and it seems to emulate the, you know, exact 
uh, structure of the tree itself. <laughs> so it's it's very uh, symbiotic. Well, why don't you describe Isis Oasis a little bit uh, for those who maybe haven't made the journey up there because people yeah. might not realize that you can stay overnight. You know, you can actually make a trip up there, stay overnight, attend workshops, mm-hmm. or just go up there by yourself, you know, have a sort of little private retreat, you know. Yes. Well, each um, uh, well, I went to um, Ireland and uh, in following ISIS wherever I could, I found out about the fellowship in 1981 and became a priestess um, there under the fellowship of ISIS. And while I was traveling there, I went to uh, the home of a wonderful, interesting uh, man uh, called Charles Shepherd, and he was a student of Dion Fortunes because I was always trying to find out more about her and um he told me to come when i came back home i should build a temple and i took his advice and when i got back to isis oasis i actually undertook to build a temple it was a small temple in fact um it was it's 12 by 12 but it looks much larger i have kind of a fake facade and it's very ornate I was lucky enough to find a man who made very interesting castings of Egyptian uh, um, pillars and hieroglyphs and so on. And I designed uh, the whole temple around that. And so people can go into that temple day or night. We keep candles burning there at all times. And there's uh, four uh, corners of the temple are devoted to the four directions. Uh, fire, water, earth, and air. And um, so they can go at any time, day or night. And it could be anybody who drives in off the street, kind of like they do, they used to do in some of the ancient times. And our lodge has a dozen rooms, as I mentioned, but it also has a great big dorm upstairs. It has the most enormous room, 30 by 80. It's very long. So a lot of, I can handle 50 people uh, in the lodge and another old, beautiful old house that I eventually got that joined this property that also was part of the Baha'i uh, property. And each room in the lodge is dedicated to a different goddess. Um, we have the 12 more famous goddesses um, and some that are a little more obscure here and there, but uh, uh, each one has the color of that particular goddess and a description on the back door of who that goddess is and what her attributes are. And in the room, we would have a statue of her or some other relic that that is part of what who she is. Uh, and it's quite amazing. Uh, people really enjoy the complexity and and that the, that each room is so different from the other. Oh, and also, too, aside from that creativity you've put in there, there's also, you know, a wonderful pool and jacuzzi and beautiful grounds with the with the black and white swans and little, oh, yeah. you know, little niches of altars all around the property. At least yeah, that's how it looked last time, time I was there. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, I really have uh, people say no matter where you look, you see something of beauty and the precepts of the temple and the fellowship are love, truth, and beauty. And we try to emulate that concept here and keep that kind of vision going and 
um, project that to all the guests that are here. And um, um, Well, tell me, Lorian, under the theater, which is a beautiful mm-hmm. theater with stained glass everywhere, yes. do you still have the underneath where you would do the Osiris rituals? Oh, yeah. we. Um, I created a uh, tomb room, and it actually has a large sarcophagus in it. And uh, you can lay in that sarcophagus and listen to music and uh, really transport yourself into another life or wherever you want to go. Um, it's it's really an amazing uh, little place. It reminds you of the tombs in Egypt. There's concrete stairs going down. And it's um, I've painted the walls with various uh, paintings that you might see in the tombs of ancient Egypt. So it's it's a very secret kind of place. Not everybody gets to go there, but when we do certain rituals, we do utilize it, and it's it's quite a, a special space. Um, um, well, and and also too uh, for those who might not know. Um, the, the 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 church there that you created is uh, what do you call it the legal arm of the Fellowship of Isis? Yes, it is. And people who get ordained here uh, do get a, a certificate and a card, and then they can be as any other minister of any other church. Uh, they can perform weddings and birthings and passings and uh, you know various. Um, things that they can do that any other minister might do in any other church. Right. So we are legal with the government and uh, the state. We're a non-profit. And we have other non-profits. I, when I came here, I started uh, the ISIS Society for Inspirational Studies. But the way the temple came into being was actually, the temple was given to me by uh, a woman uh, named Arissa Victor, she just uh, has recently published a wonderful book on astrology, and uh, she um, is the vice president of the temple. But she uh, actually came one day and said, this place has to become the temple, because I'm not able to do that anymore, and I can't keep up with it. And so she really offered me the temple, and it was, so it's really um, something that was pre-established and came here quite and remarkably and suddenly uh, I was now um that temple. I just wrote in and changed the name and and uh I she called hers the um Union Temple of Isis and that's how I met her. I followed everything of Isis and I went to her temple in Oakland one time and I got to know her and uh, we've been friends ever since. And it was there that I discovered the Fellowship of Isis because she had literature on it. And when I manifesto of the Fellowship, I said, this is something that I could belong to because, you know, it's it it allows each person to believe what they wish and, um, and follow uh, their own ideas of how to do their ceremonies or you know, who to worship, I mean, which goddess. The only thing, it had to be a goddess. And the reason I think that the goddess is so important right now is we're so over um, burdened by um, the masculine, you know, if you're looking at a scale, uh way the ancient Egyptians did, they wanted everything to be even, you know. Uh, the goddess Maat was... Um, 
her symbol is a, is a scale, and uh, and of course your heart had to be weighed against the feather, and it had to be even. And uh, we believe that things are just not properly even anymore. The masculine is overweighing the feminine, and if we could get those scales even, then the world would be much better for it. We would not have any wars because women don't want wars. And I think a lot of men don't want wars. I think most people all around the world don't would would vote for peace if they had an opportunity to vote. And well, well, I agree with you. I, I think wars are more about making money for people. And, you know, the people who are making money from the wars uh, – Put you know, uh, make the machinations happen so that uh, they can justify it, and you know then the rest of us spill our blood so they get rich. But here I'm getting it's political. It's a terrible thing. <laughs> we should have outgrown this by now, don't you think? Well, you'd think so. You'd think so. And maybe if there were more women in power, instead of you know our government, our academia, our corporate leadership being less than twenty percent, if it was really more than fifty. Percent, like the you know, to reflect the population, things might be much different. Yes, right. But it is getting better, and we we're seeing it every day. And more and more women are beginning to understand that perhaps if there is a god, he would want to have a goddess, the way they did in ancient Egypt. Every god had a goddess, and the goddess was sometimes more prominent than the god. More, um, you know, he was the math side was more. Uh, Helping the, that goddess that was uh, his other half, so to speak, right. and uh, yeah, and uh, and, the, and the temples were built like the temple of Isis and Hathor, and uh, they were built very much for the goddess. Well, you know, Lorian, um, as I'm sitting here listening and, and having your story refreshed in my memory, um, you know, I'm thinking that, you know, someone would would almost say you've, you know, you've sort of lived almost a charmed life, you know, certainly one that was protected, you know, abundance. Now, that's not to say I'm sure you worked incredibly hard. Nothing, you know, you, you know, it's not like, uh, you know, these things were, uh, you know, just handed to you by any stretch of the imagination. I'm not trying to... Um, say that, but I think it goes to show when you live a life that's sort of dedicated to goddess and these ideals, you know, I think quite often good things follow. I think so. I definitely agree. I always remember um, something that Derry said, you know, Olivia's brother, um, when I was at the castle visiting, um, he said, you you must meet the goddess halfway. You You can't uh, expect every the goddess to do everything for you, so it is a lot of hard work. And uh, but if you are doing it in tandem with the goddess, you will somehow get through and and be able to really manifest that which you can envision. Uh, I think that's some, a very important statement that I always remember and cherish. Well, and it's also, uh, too, I, I think, important that you said service, and I think that's key because, you know, some people think, oh, it's, you know, so glamorous, the idea of being a priestess. Well, you know, they really don't know the hard work involved. <laughs> yes, right. I try to let, let them know that. And we do have now almost 400 priests and priestesses in our temple uh, that we have in our a temple office uh, in a files. We keep a file for everyone, and I always... 
your file is always fatter than everyone else's. <laughs> <laughs> and I so appreciate you sending in things. And I, I would, I try to make sure that other priestesses get, um, you know, active in this work because it is important work. It's, it's not a frivolous thing. It's something that you really need to bear down on and r- realize how well, it's one of the more important movements in the world today. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I take very seriously what we're doing is is really uh, trying to help that paradigm shift to change the world. Um, you know, it, it's uh, you know not frivolous at all. all right. So, um, so now, um, now I pres- I presume that uh, the annual convocation is coming up pretty soon. Do you want to say a little bit about that? I do. Um, yes, it's. Uh, here at Isis Oasis, and it starts on October 8th to the 11th. And it's dedicated this year to Goddess Isis of 10,000 names because it's the year 2010. And then on 1010 in 2010, we're going to have our ordinations. So we're looking at a very special time. And I can tell you, I can run through quickly all the things that are going to happen. Okay. And it only costs $100 a day. And we allow people, because we know how hard it is for people to scrape anything together these days, they can come for just a day if they have to, or the ones that live close by can come just for part of the day and or, you know, just experiencing the speakers or whatever. So, so for the $100, you get the speakers, that. you get the speakers, you get meals, and you get it overnight? Three meals in an overnight and all the speakers. Okay. Yeah, and uh, so when people arrive on Friday and have dinner on our Mummy's Kitchen Pavilion now, <laughs> I, I should tell you how that came about, the Mummy's Kitchen, but anyway, <laughs> we're doing this now. And um, they're going to eventually, uh, they'll be meeting with Lady Olivia, who's always there. We seat her at a big round table in the center of everyone. <clears throat> and uh, different people, we get have different people sit with her so that table can hold about nine people so you know they can all have turns with her uh so that's kind of neat and then we all go up to the theater and leima the i i know you interviewed leima recently yes yeah the uh-huh. snake priestess who is an amazing sacred dancer well she is choreographing a um um dance with ten different priestesses and it's going to be, you know, for the god of Isis, the goddess of 10,000 names. And so it's going to be a very, it's a, you know, quite a work that she's doing as, um, uh, for us. And she always does. Every year she puts on uh, whatever goddess. And we always have our convocations dedicated to different goddesses. So this year is Isis, you know, again. Of course, it was Isis when we started it, I don't know how many years ago. But we've been through so many goddesses in each convocation. We get close to that particular goddess and get to know her really well. They've all been Egyptian goddesses, however. But as the Fellowship of Isis is always open to whoever anyone wants to be priestess of, to to work with, um, they always choose three goddesses and the main goddess that they are going to serve. So Olivia will come on after the, this marvelous dance. And, you know, Olivia does the most incredible vision journeys that ev- anyone has ever heard. It's, they're very transforming. 
and she's going to be doing that. And after that, we're going to have introductions, uh, and we uh, we do that usually in a special way. This year, I think we're going to use the goddess deck, so everyone will, you know, they'll pull one and see why or how or explain that particular goddess to the rest of us, and we'll come up with uh, some interesting things then. So then the next day, Saturday, uh, we will have a talk by Linda Isles, the priestess that always uh, does the morning with something special. She spends the year, I think, you know, she uh, writes the Circle of Isis uh, material for the, the Fellowship of Isis. And she does a wonderful job, you know, on the Internet. Her the, her site is so... Yeah, the website she keeps up, yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing what she does. And she never even knew how to do that before. But she was so dedicated. And she always studies so much. So she's going to tell us why Isis is called the goddess of 10,000 names. Why 10,000? And uh, we'll learn about that when she... On 10-10-2010. I know. <laughs> it's really exciting. And then after that, to Tracy Regula, who I believe also you've had on your show. Mm-hmm. Author uh, of the Mysteries is, of Isis. Uh-huh. Yeah. And she's just written a new book on systems. Uh, she studies systems really intensely. And so she's going to do a program on systems, which is the, you know, rattle bit was um, sacred to Hathor and also to Bost. And uh, her new book is called Sounding the Sistrum, Rhythm and Ritual. Oh. And uh, then she's going to demonstrate how to make uh, the sistrum on our dining pavilion before we have lunch. Okay. So that's the next thing. And then after lunch, Arissa Victor, the priestess of Isis, who's, um, she is quite an occultist. She studied so long uh, the astrology and Kabbalah, and she's going to share her adventures with Isis during 42 years in the realm of high magic, including the Kabbalah, the tarot, astrology, and alchemy. These are all her subjects, and she's been a wonderful scholar for all those years. And after that, we're going to have a man. You know, I thought we'd better get some men on our program. We we do like to be inclusive, and we we do want our men. We we like our men, but we need them in. They, we need them well trained. <laughs> we have a good one here, Richard Reedy. He's going to do a presentation on ritual in ancient Egypt and um, how realistically various ancient practices can be revived and restored, you know, for today, not not because we're doing it, oh, just to be bizarre, but how can we use these today? Well, like, we've re- like we created the, uh, recreated the Isis Navigatum um, every mm-hmm. year for, for 10 years. Um, you know, we yes. recreated that in a modern context to make it relevant. That's wonderful that he's doing that. Yes, and so we're looking forward to him. We've never had him here before. But I I talked to a woman who studied with him and she really gave him a good a good rep. <laughs> so, and so what's, uh, what's uh, go, go ahead I'm sorry I didn't mean to interrupt you. 
No, go. No, what were you saying? Well, I was about to ask a dumb question, and, and I just looked at the calendar, 10-10-2010, so I was just looking at it on the calendar. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then. Priestess um, and Waters uh, will uh, facilitate a problem, a process that's called coming forth. And um, that's, I think you get into little groups, and this is something that she's going to facilitate. And at the same time, while we're doing that, there'll be things that will come up in our minds, and we'll be creating these ISIS prayer flags, you know, the ones you get from Tibet. Well, we're going to emulate those, and we're going to um, string um, some colored flags. Each of us will make our own flag, and it'll have a stamp of ISIS on one side and our own personal message on the other that we can take home with us, everybody that is there. Uh, so we'll, that should be an interesting thing to do. Every year we do something a little different that uh, we can take home and it's been fun. It's our time of, uh, you know, craft time. Well, it sounds like and then, we have a real exciting agenda and that's just Saturday, huh? That's only the beginning of Saturday, and then uh, there's always time to shop, you know, with Helen and uh, her ancient Egyptian um, collection. She was, by the way, very near when all those fires happened in San Bruno, but fortunately, she escaped. Oh, that's (laughs) really good to know. Isn't that good? And because Olivia, that's where she arrives when she gets there. uh, Helen picks her up and takes her there. So she can rest a few days before she comes here. So we're very, we were really clued to the uh, TV to see that those fires, and um, it, it was really close to her. Ah, but we escaped. So after dinner, then, uh, there's going to be a play that I've written. I write a play every single year, and this time it's going to be on the Peace Pilgrim. Do you remember her? The Peace Pilgrim? The Peace Pilgrim. No. Yes. She walked 25,000 miles for peace, and her messages are very inspiring. And uh, I recently I recently um, was walking to my car when I uh, discovered a little booklet laying on the foot of my door uh, as I was getting in the car. It was on the ground. And I picked it up, and it was by the Peace Pilgrim. And I took that little booklet, and I read it all. It was very – I just kept carrying it in my, my purse all the time and reading out of it over and over again because her wisdom was so incredible. And um, so I – you can send for these books, and I did. I, I'm gonna, Everybody who's coming here will get one of those little books. And it actually appeared there, you know, for me to really get involved with the Peace Pilgrim. So that inspired inspired the play that you've written. It inspired the play. And it's going to be a play with visuals and um, a narrator and Lady Zarita, who will be performing the Peace Pilgrim. And that should be quite a wonderful, uh, you know, offering for the people that are coming, and they'll learn a lot because the Peace Pilgrim's wisdom was profound. Hmm. Uh, and what it's called, uh, the Peace Pilgrim meets the goddess. Now, the Peace Pilgrim was prior to the, uh, she died in 1981, 
and she suddenly died, and here she was walking all the time, but she died in an automobile accident, a head-on, and she died instantly while she was on her way to the, uh, to a speaking engagement. But um, <laughs> her work needs to be carried on, and we're going to do that. Oh, well, that's wonderful that you're honoring her all these years later. Yeah. Oh, remember, I, I, wrote a, I wrote a play for Omsetti as well, and, you know, I've, I've done plays on very many different subjects. Each time they're different. Right, as right. My sun, as, as my Sunday salons are, I never know where I'm going to come up with an idea. But somehow the idea always happens, mm-hmm. and I have a new thing every week. It's never the same. Well, you know. So anyway, uh, mm-hmm. well, uh, well, why don't you quickly go through Sunday, uh, and we have about Sunday, ten I'm minutes go, left because I still want to ask you a Sunday couple. Quickly. Yeah, because I have a couple questions I want to get to before our, our second guest comes on the show. Okay, I have the Gnostic Mass in the morning on Sunday. This is very traditional with Elizabeth Kelly, who's a um, Gnostic, a Mary Magdalene priestess. And uh, she does a beautiful job of this. And uh, we all almost cry as we, um, you know, go up to the um, the altar. Uh, then we're going to assemble under the 600-year-old tree. And another male will be uh, there, a dragonfly. I don't know if you know him, but he's one of our priests here. And he's going to offer the Galactic Star Gate Chakra Balancing Exercise. And uh, he has interesting things to bring. He's a great healer, actually, and a wonderful person. And after that, we'll have lunch and then get ready for ordinations uh, because it's always on a Sunday afternoon that we do the ordinations. And uh, we'll have time um, uh, during that time uh, to have these amazing ordinations with usually some kind of Oh, music and so forth in between. And then after the dinner that we have that night, which is kind of a feast usually, we'll have a film uh, that's be- that was made by the BBC. A young man for the BBC is actually done privately. And um, it's all on Olivia and her life. And he followed her around in her town and so on and different places. And it's a great film. I actually got to see it already. And bits and pieces of it are on the Internet. Okay. Uh, but, yeah, they're going to see that film. And then um, after breakfast on Monday, we're going to go to the theater for the adoration of Isis of 10,000 Names, which is always the most amazing uh, final leg of our journey here with Isis, uh, just to honor Isis herself and um, Zarita, uh will be performing that uh she handles that in the most amazing way so it's uh, saying all the names of Isis that morning and then we'll take a tour of the animals and birds and insects because uh since my six ocelots came here here so long ago well the family continued i've now produced a seventh generation domestic born ocelot but i also have servals, bobcats, and a jungle cat, as well as some hybrids. And I live with a most amazing hybrid. It's just, um, I call it the Isis cat. I actually invented it. There's no other cat like her in the universe. (laughs) And uh, she talks and does wonderful things. 
And then the insect zoo came into being uh, also recently because of a building that was given to us that we I turned into a gallery because I'm doing a bit of painting now, oil painting. And uh, it's a gallery and an insect zoo. And uh, we have all kinds of interesting insects and reptiles in there. Wow. And then the birds have also I've gotten the most amazing birds. Uh, recently I got a pair of African crown cranes, which are the crowning glory of our bird um you know collection sanctuary yeah but we've been we we're given a lot of birds that we take care of birds that people haven't been able to keep and hence ended up with several cockatoos and several macaws and lots of parrots and so on and of course our black and white swans and our egyptian geese we always have to have those <laughs> well Lorian, it sounds like uh as i mean how many years now have you been doing the convocation you know, I wish I knew. I don't have that information. It must be at least 15 years. I think so. I think so. Because yeah. if we did the Navigatum 10 years, you easily hit, were doing the convocation 15 years. Well, it sounds like you have another uh, potent convocation planned. And uh, for for anyone who uh, whose curiosity was piqued or that sounds like just the thing for you, um, can they go to the website, isisoasis.org, and get more information? Oh, yes. Yes, okay. Well, listen, one of the important questions I had for you before we have to um before I have to say goodbye to you tonight is what is the plan for the land um after you uh, pass from this plane in your uh in the loving arms of Isis? Well, I am 78 right now and uh my health is very good except that I've had many um Oh, I had operations. I've only had operations in my life. I'm never sick. But I did have to do both hips uh, were replaced. And the last time I had my hip replaced was a year ago, and it it was a real trial. It didn't work out very well, and I'm still walking with a cane. But I do plan to live about 10 years more. <laughs> However, I do have a trust, and in my trust is um, – the the land and all the buildings and all the animals and all the everything that we have here is going to the temple of Isis because I believe it needs to carry on beyond my time and I happen not to have any children of my own my children are my animals and also the people that come through here um, I'm you know becoming more like a grandmother to a lot of people so um I am hoping that uh you know that the somebody will the Tracy has promised to pick up the cudgel and she will carry this uh, through no matter what one way or the other we will continue on well, that's wonderful. That's that's really encouraging to know. Uh, and when and also, I mean, let's hope you have thirty or forty years left, not just ten. But it's it's good to know that when you do have to leave us, that uh, Isis Oasis will will remain and carry on. Well, I always said that I I was fine with eight, the number eighty eight because it was like I would play every every note on like pianos or eighty eight keys. So I thought, oh. I can. I, that's a nice number, and I was born on the eighth of June. And I, the eight is an important number to me. And I, I think when we leave, we really don't. You know, we we still carry on in certain ways. Right. And uh, 
right now I'm learning to play the harp so I can um I can entertain wherever I go. You know, Lorian, you are an inspiration as sincerely. Uh your life has been an inspiration and you just continue on. You have such a rich life and uh, goddess has really blessed you. Well, I feel blessed. Well, um, we we still have just a couple minutes. Um, tell, now, I, I was reading about uh, you have dinner theaters there and the Egyptian Asian fusion cuisine. Um, I still yes. have a couple minutes if you want to talk about that uh, real quick. I can. Um, I I have this blow up mummy in the, my kitchen, and I did cook for groups. I learned how to cook here at Isis Oasis and became rather a good cook. And um, I cooked for large amounts of people. And Austin thought, well, someday, maybe if I opened a restaurant, I'd call it Mummy's Kitchen because of this blow-up mummy that I had that was almost life-size. And uh, one, we just remodeled our kitchen here when I was visited by um, a Thai woman that had a lovely restaurant in a, um, nearby. And I knew her husband because his son had worked for me and had worked with my animals at one time. So anyway, they were looking for a place. They had to close their place in where they were and uh they very suddenly within about a week they um started using kitchen we made an arrangement where they would begin this restaurant called mummy's kitchen <laughs> and i i insisted that it have egyptian food as well as thai food or asian food as we call it okay so so that's how the egyptian asian fusion cuisine came into being Oh, and wow. I gave her all these Egyptian recipes, and I have more under my belt. So I'm hoping <laughs> we can add a few more because they're they keep adding more Thai Thai dishes, and we even have now recently put in ostrich burgers because the ancient Egyptians, of course, had ostrich meat. You know, ostriches used to run around in ancient right. Egypt. Right. So um yeah. Well so you never uh, you never cease to amaze me. You are always reinventing yourself and Isis Oasis, keeping it fresh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's always something new. <laughs> well, Lorian, thank you so very much uh for being on the show tonight and uh I certainly hope the convocation this year is a, is another success and uh in your next trip to Egypt and all your endeavors. Thank you uh thank you so much for everything you've done to help rebirth the goddess uh in, you know in our world today because you have certainly done a big part of it. And you too. I right, so well, honor you. Well, good night, Lorian, and I'm sure I'll see you soon. And good night. Good night. Blessings. Blessings to you, too. Well, listeners, uh, if you're just tuning in, this is Karen Tate, hostess of Voices of the Sacred Feminine, where we discuss goddess, the divine feminine, and the resurging interest in right brain thinking, and also the feminine consciousness, whether the great she, as I like to call her, be a deity, archetype, or ideal, and how these new values and benchmarks just might save the world. And uh, we have been talking to Lorian Vignay of uh, Isis Oasis. She's the author of The Goddess Bade Me Do It, with certainly an interesting life uh, that uh, I certainly have no doubt uh, has been uh, guided uh, by uh, our great goddess Isis. Well, um, we are coming to the second uh, half of our show, and um I am so pleased uh, to have on the line here uh, with us uh, Abigail McBride. Let me um, unmute her so she can say hello. Uh, hi, Abigail. Oh, hello, can you hear Karen. me? 
I Hi. Fine. Good evening. Well, thank you for being on the show with us tonight. I used your song, Let the Way Be Open, uh, as our opening song tonight, in case you didn't hear. Oh, well, that's just lovely. What a, what a good way to get things started. It sounds like the interview with Lorian went really well. Oh yeah, she's lovely and has such a, you know, such a, a charmed, inspiring life, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I know often people are interested in how, you know, what the life of a priestess is like and, uh, you know, Lorian certainly has a unique one. But, uh, you mm-hmm. do too, you know, in your own right. Uh, tonight we're going to be talking about music, magic and mystery and exploration of the fire circle alchemy. Let me just tell uh, listeners a little bit about you first and then we'll jump into our discussion okay uh, well abigail uh she is a singer a priestess a musician and a dancer uh she's based in las vegas her recent albums are called fire of creation and enter the center and they're collections of her original music that have been inspired by the alchemical fire circle community and listeners you probably have heard me um you know tease you with some snippets uh you know here on the show uh, Abby is also uh, the lead singer and percussionist for Zingaya, whose music is also on the show. Uh, her earlier release, Dancers of Twilight, has won critical acclaim. She's grateful to be part of a new Kirtan project called Sweet Ride to Heaven, Jubilation, and Celebration Band and brings her skills as a singer, percussionist, and harmonium player. She travels worldwide, performing magic and belly dance and teaching drumming, chanting, and movement workshops. She's a high priestess of the family of fire and spends her free time gardening, cooking, and practicing the art of levitation as lead assistant to her husband, the magician, Jeff McBride. Wow, you sound like you just have an interesting life too, Abigail. That just sounds like fun. I'd love to go around the world belly dancing and teaching and drumming and chanting, if that's not a charmed life. (laughs) I am very, very blessed in all the different ways creativity expresses through me and all the different ways I get to express it. Well, are you inspired by any particular goddess? I mean, do you have like a patroness that, um, or, or is it just, you know, the universal goddess energy? It's really both. Um... The goddess who I'm most connected to is the Egyptian goddess Sekhmet. Fire goddess. That is a fire goddess who is often pictured with the head of a lion and the body of a woman. And I'm very fortunate because just uh, about an hour away from Las Vegas in the middle of the Mojave Desert, there's a temple dedicated to the goddess Sekhmet that's open to all women. Um, And it's it's a real gift of a place to be able to go to. Oh, absolutely. I wrote about it in my book, Sacred Places of Goddess, 108 Destinations, and I never miss the opportunity when we're in Las Vegas to go there uh, because it is such a gift to have that temple uh, that Genevieve Vaughan, who's also been on the show, um, you know, uh, gave gave the community because uh, for listeners who don't know, this is an interesting tidbit. Uh, Genevieve Vaughn, the benefactress of that uh, temple that Abigail was talking about, uh, she was having trouble becoming pregnant, and she was on a trip in Egypt, and she heard about the goddess Sekhmet and her powers as a healer, a mother. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, Sekhmet's son, Nefertum, is uh, considered the patron deity of doctors. Anyway, Genevieve um, made a promise to goddess if she could become pregnant, she would build her a temple. And lo and behold, 
uh, Genevieve gets pregnant, and she kept her promise, and we have the temple, and now Genevieve, I think, ended up with three daughters. Is, did I get the story right? You've got it perfectly. Perfectly right. <laughs> So, uh, Abigail, do you get to do much, uh, you know, much of your ritual and, and, and fire ceremonies there at the Sekhmet Temple, or, or is it a different place uh, you use for for these uh, wonderful rituals that you do? Well, I make it a point to go on private retreat out to the Sekhmet Temple at least twice a year, and for taking <clears throat> some space just by oneself, there is very little better than being in the middle of the desert. We also do our Vegas Vortex Fall Fest fire circle out there. Um, that's the one that we call Bone Dance. And that's actually coming up in just a few weeks toward the end of uh, October. Okay. Well, now, um, you're obviously a priestess. Were you, uh, were, were you called through your music? Um, I mean, how did the music making and the, the priestessing, I mean, how did it all morph together into this beautiful alchemy of your life? Well, I grew up in a very spiritual household. Um, my parents are both passionate about their Judaism, and connecting to the divine was very strongly emphasized. And what I found over time is um, my mother was working in religious education, and so I got to see a lot of the behind-the-scenes of what goes on when you're not in temple on Friday or Saturday. And I had a conversation with her one day, and I said, listen, I'm thinking about going to school and becoming a rabbi. And she said, Abby, don't do it. You won't like it. There's too much behind-the-scenes, political, board meeting stuff. You won't enjoy it. Don't do it. And yet I felt spirit calling me to the path of spiritual leadership. So to look back and to see that the road that the journey has taken me on is not at all surprising given that I felt this strong strong pull towards spirit from an early age. Well, I'm curious, if you came from a Jewish family, um, was it, you know, were you looking at goddess as Shekinah, or how did you make this transition to, you know, from Judaism to, to I assume, paganism? Yeah, well, you know, my mother always had um, a strong interest in the esoteric aspects of Judaism, and for many years, she taught Kabbalah and mysticism. Ah. And she learned early on about the feminine presence of God, the Shekhinah energy. And she, you know, had a very alternative outlook on Judaism. So she was very interested in the presence of the Shekhinah and the healing energies of Judaism. And so she kind of opened the door for me to have a pretty open view about spirituality. Okay. Well, that was that was really good. Um, so it wasn't like you had to, uh, you know, risk, uh, you know, the wrath of the family or anything like that. Oh no, they they have been to our fire circle rituals countless times. They love what we're doing, and uh, it. The one thing that's interesting about the fire circle work is that it transcends and includes all religious backgrounds, as long as that religious background is open to tolerance. Okay. Okay. Well, so how did, um, all right, so you, you decided not to become the rabbi. How did you get into this spiritual path of fire, music, and alchemy? Well, music started when I was very young. When I was four, my parents decided that piano lessons would be a good idea. And so I started learning music at an early age. 
both my parents were musical. My father played piano and clarinet, and my mother is always singing. So I kind of grew up with music all around me all the time. And then the piano, you know, was a a real gateway instrument for me in that it led me to many other instruments over time. And I think, you know, that it was music that led me to my first pagan event, which was Rites of Spring in Massachusetts in 1989. And I had gone there because I had heard about the drumming there, and I wanted to find out more. The summer before that was the very first time that I ever heard the sound of people drumming together. I had been at a music festival in Michigan, and one night after dinner I was sitting around my camp with my friends, and I heard this sound coming through the woods of people playing drums together as the sun was going down. And so I went for a walk, and I found the source of the sound, and I saw all these women dancing and playing drums near the fire. And I kind of hung out near the edge and just watched and listened for a long time. And then I w- when the players took a break, I went and I sat next to one of the women. And I asked her, like, show me something. Show me anything. I, I, want, I want in, you know. <laughs> and um, she showed me one part, and then she showed me something else. And by the time I wandered back to my tent, it was late past midnight, and I was completely hooked. <laughs> and, you know, that that was the the beginning of the journey, and that led me to getting a drum when I got back home from the festival, and that led me to another drum, and then that led me to find out about this Rites of Spring gathering. At, at the time, I had been working um, part-time in a little gift shop, and, you know, there was one case in the gift shop where the owner sold this kind of occult jewelry, and he had this very interesting sort of occult vibe, but he didn't really talk about it and he didn't really proselytize but he wore a pentacle ring and I was very very curious mm-hmm. and one day he happened to leave this pamphlet on the near the cash register about this event that was happening this rites of spring and I said hey Alan what, what is this he said oh it's probably nothing you're interested in but you know if you do decide to check it out you well you probably wouldn't want to but you might want to read this book called the spiral dance <laughs> and that and that just opened all these doors you know so it was through this sort of casual conversation and chance encounter that I ended up going to write this spring. And, you know, on a connected line here, through a series of casual conversations and coincidences, that was also the first year that Jeff, who's now my husband, went to write this spring. So we first met playing drums around the fire. Wow. In 1989. Well, you know, as someone who has been to a lot of different kinds of ritual, I personally have to say, and I don't know, maybe this just goes for everybody, and I'm not saying anything new to listeners, but the most potent ones for me are always the ones with incredible music, especially the drumming. I, you know, and, and maybe you tell me, is it just that primal sound of the drums that just speaks to us in this deep place that, you know, maybe some other instruments don't, or is it just different for different people? You know, I really think it's a primal thing. Our sense of hearing is one of the first senses to turn on while we're still in our mother's womb. We can't see anything yet. We can't taste anything yet. We can't smell anything yet. We can't really feel anything yet, but we can hear. And the first sound, one of the first sounds we ever hear is the heartbeat of the mother, this steady, rhythmic pulse that on some deep, instinctive level lets us know that everything is okay. 
Mm. And mm. so I think when we're in ritual and we're receiving that uh, a version of that same energy, I think it has a very deep effect on people. Well, I know it's certainly easier for me to go in trance if there's if there's good drumming going on. You know, it really just mm-hmm. sort of transports you uh, to a different place. But what do you mean when you add this idea of, you know, that sort of, um, you know, I don't know, I guess it's kind of mysterious or nebulous, you know, that word alchemy. What, what do you mean about the alchemy of drumming and dancing and singing? What, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Oh, yes, I would love to. I would love to. Alchemy is commonly known as the ancient art of turning lead into gold. But on a deeper, more symbolic level, it's really about personal, interpersonal, and planetary change. There was an alchemist named Paracelsus who said that alchemy is the gentle acceleration of growth through the use of the fire of nature. So what we are doing is creating, we're we're working in the alchemical metaphor because alchemy transcends and includes all belief systems, so it's non-exclusive. And we're saying, okay, we're going to start in the dark of the night, and we are going to sing and to play music and to dance and to find ways to be of service until the sun rises. And each person who engages in this ritual is going to know what their own personal intention is. Often we have our participants make prayer ties. This is a a strip of fabric on which they write or draw or symbolize whatever their intention is for that night's working. And you actually go, go for like eight hours? Oh, yes. We sure do. We sure do. Now, these intentions could be simply, you know, to be present or to have lots of fun. Mm -hmm. Or it could be, you know, to target the energy that I raise toward manifesting abundance in my life and the new job that is going to come to me. Mm -hmm. You know, like it can be very specific or it can be very broad. Absolutely up to the individual. Okay. And what we'll do is bring people in there will be some sort of opening some sort of ritual beginning and then we move into the middle which is some combination of fire music movement voice and service and over the course of the night the energy goes in giant waves where The drumming will be hot and heavy and fast and loud for a while, and then it will come down, and we'll move into a place of silence. And out of that silence, someone will begin a song, maybe a song they've just written that instant or maybe a song that they've known for years. So is this totally organic? It's not scripted out? Totally organic. What's scripted out is that there is a beginning, there is a middle, and there is an end. Okay. But it's always different. And I tell you, Karen, in 20-something years of doing fire circles, every fire circle I go to, I see something I haven't seen before, and I hear something I haven't heard before. And I know when I am encountering new experiences like that, it means my brain is growing new neural pathways. Mm. And I am evolving, and I am learning, and I am growing 
every time. Now, if you and, were... No, you, you, go ahead. Well, I was going to... I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I'm so excited about this, I wanted to ask you, if you're new to this, if somebody just, you know, um, you know, who's who's very curious wants to come, do you give them any tips on how to open up to, you know, to, to the divine voice, so to speak? Yes, yes. We, we, my husband just says that the fire circle is, you know, sacred work cleverly discre- disguised as a party, <laughs> you know, because from the outside it just looks like people having a great time drumming and singing and dancing. Right. You know, but once you're on the inside of it, you know, you are targeting the energy that you raise and we all know about raising energy through drumming or through dancing or through singing people have been doing this for countless millennia but when we target that energy toward a specific intention that's making real magic right so for the newcomers for the for the people who are just coming in for the first time we always have an orientation which is kind of led by the community because there are people who have been doing this for decades now and mm-hmm. they know they know how to do it. So it isn't just me and Jeff standing up at the front of the room saying, okay, first we do this and then we do this and now you do that. But it's kind of everybody organically says, oh, you know what, I, I just wanted to share that um, if you're playing drums for the first time, make sure you take your rings off. You know, and if a drum is standing up and uncovered, it means you can play it. If it's lying down or covered, just leave it alone though, Okay. And then somebody else will pop in with another piece of information. So there's always some kind of orientation. We do um, two open events in Las Vegas every year, one in October that's coming up called Fall Fest, and one in February that's called Mysterium. We do a third gathering in May uh, called Mayfire, which is only for people who have been to one of our gatherings before. Now, Mysterium and Fall Fest each have one all-night fire circle on the Saturday night of the event. Mayfire has three all-night fire circles in a row, Thursday night, Friday night, and Saturday night. So you really get blissed out in May at Beltane. You you really can go deep and manifest um, amazing miracles in your life. Okay. So, um, so for someone who has never experienced this before, would you say just, you know, come and be open and experience it and just be open to whatever it is, uh, you know, whatever divine guidance comes? I think it is always good to approach new things with beginner's mind. I mm-hmm. also might encourage them to look on the VegasVortex.com website and read up a little bit about our fire circle and look through some of the articles in our resourcery because the more you know, the the deeper you can see. Right, right. Well, now, how does the ritual of the fire circle work? Well, alchemy is the art of transformation. Or, well, alchemy is one of the ancient arts of transformation, right? But really, alchemy is about transmutation, which is different. Any Any fire ritual you go to is going to have at its essence, transformation, because fire transforms things. It transforms wood into ash, and wood is not necessarily better or worse than ash. They're just different. Alchemical fire is different. Alchemical fire transmutes things. It transmutes lead into gold, and yes, gold is better than lead. It's it's transformation with intention. 
toward evolution, toward growth, <clears throat> toward, you know, fr- from the raw to the cooked, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what I mean, transforms water to steam, you know, uh, yeah. another example. Yeah. Right, water system where neither neither one is better. You know, they're they're just different aspects of of the one. And in that regard, you know, so too gold is just a different aspect of the one as is lead. You know, they're mm-hmm. all made from the same prima materia, the same first matter. But the alchemical fire circle is aimed at creating a laboratory, an, an experiential laboratory for safe and sacred play, where the participants enter as individual elements and as everyone dances and drums and plays at the fire, we kind of melt into a solution together. And in this sort of blending together, we form deep connections with people and and with our highest selves. So are you saying in a sense um, your essence um, sort of becomes like the lead that turns to gold. I mean, is that sort of metaphorically um, mm-hmm. what, what we're saying here? Yeah, I, I think that's a good way to put it. I think, you know, when someone comes in with a targeted intention, you know, we we envision that they're going to work this intention through the seven stages of the alchemical process the first of which is calcination, which is the burning up part. In the laboratory, this is when the alchemist lights the fire under the vessel and starts burning whatever's inside until there's only ashes left. So at the fire circle, if I was coming in with, say, the intention of, I really want to enhance my creativity, then for me, calcination would be about burning away what's in the way. You know, trying to get in touch with what do I need to burn off? You know, oh, I don't have time to practice. Maybe I can burn that off. You know, what are my excuses? What do I need to let go of? Mm -hmm. The second stage is dissolution. Now, oh, by the way, the first stage, calcination, it corresponds with the root chakra, okay? This, this, This is also a ladder up through the chakra system. So dissolution corresponds with the second chakra. And at the fire circle, this is the time when we'll see people starting to sweat or starting to cry. In the alchemical laboratory, this is the time when the alchemist pours in liquid to the flask and mixes it with the ashes that are left behind from the burning, forming this sort of suspension. And in my example of creativity, this might be you know, about tears. This might be about grieving, you know, that... I really wanted to finish that painting, and I never did it, and it made me feel so sad that I never wanted to paint again, right? Mm-hmm. Which takes us to the third stage, and the third chakra, this is the stage called separation. And here, this is when the alchemist would dry out whatever was left behind, separating out the, the liquid, or, yeah, he would separate out the liquid from the solid material, right? And in our creativity example... This is the time when we sort of separate out, like, okay, what's real here and what's not real here? You know, like, is it is it true that just because I didn't finish a painting I should never paint again? Maybe not. You know, what's mine, what's not mine? And in the fire circle, this is when we see people, like, really beginning to 
dissolve the boundaries between themselves and others. They're separating themselves from the things that separate them from others and from themselves. And in so doing, this leads us up to the heart chakra for conjunction. And this is where the alchemist would put back together the liquid and the solid that he had separated in a new form. This is, this is often called the lesser stone because this is the time when above and below join within us. This is the time in the fire circle where, okay, things have been really energetic and hot and people got sweaty and maybe some people cried and then things sort of calmed down. And now things are coming into the heart and they're coming into this really loving place. So in my creativity example, this might be welcoming back the part of myself that left when I never finished that painting welcoming back the part of myself that thought I couldn't but realizes maybe I can, right? So we move up, we move up into the throat chakra, and this, this is the process that's called fermentation. In the laboratory, this is the alchemist sitting, and maybe there's a very low flame and doesn't really look like anything's happening, but something's happening, you just have to wait. And this is, the, this is the step that has the greatest patience, you know, that requires the greatest patience. And, you know, in the fire circle, this is the time when, okay, you know what, guys, we've been doing this for three and a half, four hours. It's really late, and it doesn't necessarily feel like anything's happening, but what are we going to do? We're going to be here till sunrise. Maybe someone will do something. Maybe I can remember that poem I used to know. Maybe I could do something. And what's interesting now is that in the laboratory, this is when the, there's this oily sheen with rainbow colors that might appear on the top of whatever is left in the vessel. And this, the alchemist called this the peacock's tail. And at the fire circle, this is that moment when that person takes that creative risk and says, I'm going to try doing that poem that I remember. I'm going to step out and show my colors. In the creativity example, this corresponds with the discipline of practice, you know, that it takes time and it takes practice to, to achieve mastery. So this is the step of fermentation, of waiting and practicing and working, and maybe it doesn't look like anything's happening, but suddenly something happens. I have to ask you a and question. Oh, sure, sure. <laughs> Forgive me, because I'm the detail-oriented Virgo. I can't, I can't help but you know, structures everything to me. <laughs> um, as you're, so you're going, you're doing this all night, and you're going through these. Uh, what, what I think you're, you're, you're telling us, these are the seven stages of ecstasy that 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 you mentioned. We were going to talk about, right? Um, yeah, or these, these, uh, yeah. so, so, um, or do you sort of? guide people through this or is all of this just happening organically i mean do just people organically know these steps i'm just really curious about that it depends it depends on the event um at mayfire we have one night of the three night fire circles is structured where every hour the alchemical clock turns and at that transition time, a small group comes out and does a five to seven minute long something representing that transition, that stage. Ah. And it, what we encourage our, our facilitators, and they change all the time, we encourage them, involve the group, see what the group's going to come up with, and then when your small group does something, see if you can make it include the big group. 
so that every hour there are these sort of semi-structured ritual theater experiences okay. that guide us up the ladder of the caduceus, up the ladder of the chakras. Okay. So we move into the third eye, which is the stage called distillation. And distillation is in the, in the laboratory when the alchemist has gotten the material in the flask to a certain point, he, he skims off whatever's left and he's refining what's left behind. So fermentation is kind of connected to the skimming off part, and distillation is about refining what's left behind. So maybe in my creativity example, this is when I go back into that painting I didn't finish, and I put a little gold leaf on that edge, and I change that dark blue to a black, and and I'm making like final changes. And then we move up to the crown. The crown chakra is the stage called coagulation. And this, in the fire circle, is when the sun crests the horizon. This is when we see the gold at the end of the journey. And in this moment, the group comes to a place of silence. Sometimes there's an om, sometimes not. There's some magic words that are spoken by the entire group. And then we hold hands, and we go around, and we say our names, and we ground the energy, and we open the ritual. So it's this process that goes all night long. And what we found is that, you know, there's these these different sort of overarching phases of alchemy. There's the black phase, which is the first part. There's the white phase, which is the middle part, and the red phase, which is the gold part. And we started noticing this back at Rites of Spring, you know, many, many years ago, I remember Jeff pulled me aside and he said, it's led to gold. You know, he, Jeff McBride was the one who really brought in the metaphor of alchemy to the fire circle community. And that magic of his has spread around the world and over the oceans. There's groups that are doing alchemical fire circle in Hawaii and in Amsterdam and in Czechoslovakia. I mean, it, it's, it's really gotten out. It's very exciting. Well, it sounds incredible. In fact, uh, you've really piqued my curiosity. I'm thinking maybe, just maybe, I'll have to make that drive from L.A. (laughs) You know, it's not that long. (laughs) No, no, it sure isn't. So, um, all right, so so, uh, what you just described, when dawn comes, and um, is is that the end of the seven stages? Um, yeah, that, that's where the seven stages reach their culmination. Okay. Coming gold. And in that, in that time of silence, what we encourage people to do as they're gazing at the rising sun is to inhale that light, to imagine that they're inhaling that light of the rising sun into every cell of their being and that it's like they're becoming golden in every cell. Hmm. So they're taking in this light, they're taking in this gold and filling themselves with it, which really is, you know, sort of the sending off of the cone of power toward your intention that has Mm. kind of been building all night toward this moment. We've been here all night playing and praying and waiting for the sun to rise, and here it is. Wow. Wow. 
I, I, I'm still trying to wrap my head around the idea that you actually have the energy to go all night, but maybe this really just invigorates you. It really does. And what, what we find also is that, you know, it is a push. It, 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 my friend Dr. Joshua Levin refers to this as an ordeal of creativity. Mm. Because in our culture, we don't really have ordeal ceremonies. No. You know, we don't live in a time when, you know, you reach puberty and your tooth gets knocked out. You know, <laughs> we, we, don't, we don't have these kinds of, like, ordeal ceremonies. Okay, we have the military, and maybe there's some ordeal ceremony in that, but for, for us, for most of us, um, a bar mitzvah isn't that big of an ordeal, you know? No, no, so, it, it doesn't so challenge us that much. Not that much. So what we find is that, yeah, some people get tired. And, okay, nobody is going to die from missing one night of sleep. <laughs> and the benefits. The human body can withstand more. Now, in so our, what in kind our, Oh, go ahead. Well, I, well, I was going to say, what kind of feedback uh, do you know? Like, if if you were to think back to people's reaction, or the, you know, what, what were their ecstatic um, the results of this? I mean, what kind of things have people said when this was all over? Oh, people, I would say ninety-eight percent of the time have very positive experiences especially if they stay through the whole thing. What we find is that the fire circle is like a microcosm for the macrocosm of our lives. And whatever core issue we're carrying around that we bump into in daily life all the time is going to show up in the microcosm of the fire circle. So maybe it's, um, he's looking at me funny. He doesn't like me. Right? <laughs> Maybe this is the core issue that, like, wherever I go in my life, like, oh, my boss is looking at me funny, he doesn't like me. Oh, that guy in the who's driving neck, you know, wherever it is that we bump into this over and over again, sure enough, you get in the fire circle at some point during the course of the night, it's going to be, hey, that guy looked at me funny, I didn't like that, he doesn't like me, right? And then the question is, okay, what do you do in that moment? Do you do what you always do? Oh, I'm going to leave. Forget this, this isn't fun, I'm out of here, I'm going to get a new job, I'm going to, uh. <laughs> or you find a way to engage the process of the magic, and maybe you, like, pick up a little rattle and you start shaking along with the rhythm. You you do something different. Maybe you decide that's the moment that you're going to go and, like, refill a water bottle on the water altar. Maybe that's the time you decide, you know what, I'm going to go and dance three times around the fire and, and think about, he doesn't. he's looking at me funny, he doesn't like me. What does that mean? Right? And if you can find a way through to do something different and engage the process of the fire circle, instead of just leaving, by the time sunrise comes around, it doesn't matter what your background is. If you have been engaged in the ritual, you are going to have a capital E experience at sunrise. And those experiences can be life-changing. You know, there there have been more proposals than I can count that have come out of the fire circle. You know, there have been more doctoral theses started and burned at the fire circle than I can count. There have been, you know, babies that have been named, uh, ashes that have been scattered. You know, every, everything I think that could be done in public at a fire circle has been 
And, wow. you know, it really is about, you know, how clear are you on what your intention is and how willing are you to really engage the process to work it. And, yeah, okay, it's not going to necessarily work that, okay, my intention is I want a new car tomorrow. And I'm going to drum and dance real hard, and then I'm going to get a new car. <laughs> and the car will appear. Yeah, right. <laughs> it isn't always like that. Although, you know, our, our dear friend had been in Las Vegas for a little over a year and was having a lot of trouble finding work. He's an incredibly talented musician and conductor. And he came to the fire and said, okay, my intention is I'm either going to find work in Las Vegas or I'm going to find work elsewhere within this year. You know, and in just a few months, he was conducting the Lion King, playing for Jersey Boys, and working at Ka, which is one of the big theater shows here in Los Angeles. Right. So he kind of got his cup filled up. So wow, wow. That's awesome. Well, now let me ask you, um, when you, uh, you know, when we discussed what you were going to talk about, you also made mention about courting the muse. Is that something hmm. separate than this? I think courting the muse kind of ties into practice. You know, there's, the muses, you know, are the ones who inspire our creativity, according to the Greek tradition. And, you know, I find, you know, I, I've, I have several CDs of original music that are out, and I find that the muse is most attentive to me when I'm diligent in my practice. It's almost as if she says, okay, meet me halfway. Mm-hmm. Tell me that you're devoted, and I will give you gifts. Abigail, I have to tell you, you know what Lorian just said in the last segment? She said mm-hmm. you have to meet the goddess halfway, and then she you know, she um, rewards you with boons. You've both just mm-hmm. said the same thing. That's just so incredible. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, it's like if I want to be a writer, then I have to sit down and write. And if I want to be a painter, I have to pick up the brush and paint. You know, I have to be willing to make a lot of bad art in order to make good art. Mm-hmm. So just mm-hmm. that willingness to, okay, I'm going to sit down at my African harp today and I'm going to play scales for 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, just just that willingness can open the door for untold creativity to flow through. Now, and, and in terms of inspiration, uh, you talked about conscious breathing. Is through Are you saying through conscious breathing we can become inspired? I think that, um, you know, inspiration comes from the Latin root inspiritus, which is all about bringing in spirit. And I think that, you know, just as we use only a small portion of our minds, so too do we also use only a small portion of our lungs. I think most people, when they breathe, don't use their full lung capacity by any stretch of the imagination. And it wouldn't surprise me if our listeners' breathing has just changed now. Mm-hmm. Bringing awareness to the breath can bring physiological changes to the body in seconds. So one of the exercises that we do here at our Magic and Mystery School in Las Vegas is we encourage our students to watch their breath for a few breaths. And then on their next in-breath, when they think they're at the top of the in-breath, to sip in a little more air, to completely fill the lungs. You know, the, the tips of the lungs come up under the collarbones, and people never breathe all the way up into there. So we encourage them, breathe all the way in. 
And then when you breathe out, when you think you're at the bottom of your exhale, contract your abdominal muscles and squeeze out that last bit of air that hangs out down in the bottom of the lungs. And then feel how the new air just pours in like water pouring into a vase. And we find that when people breathe in this manner, in this deep, full use of their lungs, within two breaths, their minds are quiet. Their heart rate is slowing down. Sometimes they begin to feel their fingertips or their scalp tingling as oxygen reaches these far extremities of the body where it doesn't usually get to. So, yeah, I think breathing is a great way to bring the quiet space for spirit to come in. Tell me more about your mystery school. The Magic and Mystery School is here in Las Vegas. Um, My husband and I teach at least one, usually two sessions a month. We have special guest teachers come in from Holland and Chicago and Texas, different luminaries in the world of conjuring magic, performance magic. And we are uh, improving the art of magic one magician at a time. uh, Now, when you're you're saying magic, because I I know your husband's a magician, are we talking Mm -hmm. occult magic or we're talking performance Mm -hmm. magic on the stage for entertainment? The Magic and Mystery School is for performance magic on and off stage. Okay. If your listeners want to look at magicalwisdom.com, they can learn all about the magic school. Okay. Magical wisdom. All right. That's very cool. Um, Well, what I want to ask you about is, um, you know, since you've been, you know, doing all of this work, uh, you know, as a fire priestess with alchemy and transformation, and definitely I was thinking that that all-night ritual certainly falls under the category of having to have tenacity, which I like to call Sekhmet, the lady of tenacity manifest. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yes, Uh, I just wonder if, um, you know, is there anything you'd like to share with listeners maybe you've learned about the essence of Sekhmet, you know, in this journey, you know, you've been on? Mm -hmm. Well, Sekhmet is a goddess of transformation. And for me, her, her really deeply powerful magic is about transforming rage into energy that can be used to restore the divine order. So with some of my women that I work with, we've experimented with roaring like a lioness and what that feels like and how that moves energy within and around us. And we've experimented with, you know, the story of Sekhmet and what was she thinking when in that story she did this or did that. Mostly what I think about Sekhmet is that she is a goddess of incredible love and healing and transformation for the highest good. You know, she's seen as the goddess of war and destruction, but what isn't often seen is that this destruction is to restore the divine order, to restore Mm. the balance of ma'at, of truth. So well said. Uh, And I think she's probably, maybe along with Kali, uh, maybe Mm -hmm. one of the most misunderstood uh, goddesses out there because all people hear is her, you know, the story of her her, uh, crazy rampage. And Mm -hmm. I don't think they really understand it. 
I would agree with you. I would agree with you on that, Karen. Well, and I and I and I don't know. And please tell me. I, I'd, I'd love to hear your feedback. You know, I also wonder. Uh, that's. I think that's probably the only story we have about her, when, where she, you know, goes on this rampage and she has to be drugged so that she doesn't kill all of mankind. See, to me, that's not a reflection of Sekhmet at all. You know, it, I, I don't think. To me, that sounds more like a patriarchal distortion um, somewhere along the line. Um, I mean, I could guess about the motivation, but personally, I sort of just disregard that story. And I, I just wonder if if you agree or disagree. Well, I think, you know, people make up stories to try to grow in understanding, you know. And if there were, you know, a plague that swept through and killed so many people, you know, well, we would need to make up a story to explain that. Ah, and okay. And maybe that's how the story of Sekhmet, you know, came to be. We were bad. <laughs> we were bad, so this is her retribution. You know, yeah. There, there's the the idea, though, that, you know, she's also the mother of medicine. But we don't really hear the stories of her and Ptah and Nefertem very much. No. You know, there's a, there's a chance that, you know, just as all beings evolve, perhaps these god forms also evolve. And that perhaps when Sekhmet went through that story of the destruction of mankind, perhaps she learned something from that. And perhaps now she doesn't, like, go out on rampage because Daddy says so. Mm-hmm. You know, per- perhaps now she's learned more about, you know, transforming rage and using rage to restore order. And knowing where her own boundaries are, knowing when she's, you know, angry beyond angry. Right, right. And and actually, you know, I think that is such a, such a needed quality today. You know, first of all, t- for women to allow themselves to feel sacred rage and then to transform that to restore maybe divine order in this world of chaos. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious, and I know, you know, I, I, we didn't talk about we, that we were going to go in this direction, so if you don't feel comfortable going there, I won't press it. But have you had, uh, it, are there any experiences you may have had with her that you would like to possibly share? Well, one experience happened last year out at Fall Fest at her temple when we were there for bone dance. Now, we have a policy at our rituals that there's no drugs and no alcohol. And um, somewhere around 2 or 3 in the morning, these two guys showed up with beer cans and their big dog. And we we also have a no-pets policy. And I saw them coming up to the gate, and I saw several of the men of our tribe go up and meet them, including Jeff. And a few minutes later, the dog was in the truck, and the beer cans were gone, and the guys were in the circle. And they were rather intoxicated, but they weren't misbehaving. And they seemed to be having a good time. And I don't know, maybe an hour later, I looked over and saw that uh, Jeff was looked like he was saying goodbye to them. Looked like they were leaving. So I went over to say bye, and I felt Sekhmet come up behind me, and it felt like she put a giant paw on my shoulder. And one of the young men said to me, "Well, you probably won't see us again. He's going to Iraq tomorrow, and I'm going back to Ohio, and I don't think he's going to come home. He doesn't think so either." Mm. 
And I said, oh. And I thought, okay, segment, now what? And I said to him, you know what? I would like to give you a special blessing before you go. Would that be okay? He said this to the one who was going to Iraq. He said, yes, yes, please. And I put my hands on his head. And I said some words to him about, I see you here and now. And I see you returning to this time. And I see you returning whole in your mind and your body and your heart and your soul. You will be safe. You will trust your intuition. You will know what to do. And all will be well. And when he looked up, he had tears in my eyes, and I felt Sekhmet take her paw off my shoulder. And his friend also had tears in his eyes, and he said, See, see, now you're going to be okay. Now you're going to be all right, man. That's why we came out here, man. I'm really curious to see if they're going to show up this year again or not. Wow. You know, that, that was one of the more recent examples of feeling, like, very connected to the power of the goddess. And she was working through you. Well, I have tears in my eyes. i got to tell you, that was a beautiful story. Well, Abigail, I have so enjoyed talking to you. And uh, to meet another Sepmet sister, that just totally touches my heart. And you may just see me out there in Vegas sometime. <laughs> well, I think that would be just lovely. Just lovely. <clears throat> well, thank you so very much, uh, you know, for the work that you're doing. Thank you for allowing me to use your beautiful music on the show. And um, I'm, I'm just in awe of what you're doing. I think it's uh, it, it's important, and it's obviously beautiful and transformational, but I'm sure you know all of that. But, you know, just sure. know that, um, you know, what you're doing is important work in the world, and, and thank you so very much. Thank you, Karen. Can I give your listeners a couple of websites in case? Oh, absolutely. I'm sorry. You know what? I usually do that, but I was so moved by that story, I kind of yeah. got off track. Please, please definitely I do. I understand. The first place to check is VegasVortex.com. That has all the information about the events that we do here in Las Vegas and a lot more information about alchemy and fire circles. You'll also want to go to CDBaby.com. Do a search for Abby Spinner McBride, and you can find my music there. If you're interested in reading some of my writing, please go to spinnersweb.net. There's no apostrophe, just spinnersweb.net. And uh, Karen, I hope you do come out for one of our events here. It would be wonderful to share time with you. Thank you. You have certainly piqued my curiosity. I'm going to work on this. (laughs) Well, I just want you to know that I'm going to close the show tonight with your song, uh, Om Sekhmet. Oh, beautiful. Um, Thank you. Yes. Yes, so thank you. Thank you so very much, Abigail. I really appreciate the time you've taken to be on the show and share the beautiful work you do with listeners. It's my pleasure, Ken. Thank you so much. You have a great night. Same here. Good night. Bye-bye. Well, listeners, that was Abigail McBride. And I don't know about you, but I am thinking about getting my butt uh, out to Las Vegas to experience, uh, you know, these fire circles that they're talking about uh, with my Sekhmet brethren. Um, wow, that was that was just awesome. Well, um, I guess uh, we only have a couple minutes left, so uh, a couple things I want to do is uh, let you know that 
Uh, next Wednesday, we will not have a show. Uh, we had a special show uh, Monday night, uh, two days ago, with uh, Francesca Gentile talking about God, Goddess, and Sex, and Goddess Sex Magic, uh, which uh, we did in place of the show we will not have next Wednesday. So please come back with us on Wednesday the 29th uh, when I have Donna a Wolf Folk Cross on the show. Uh, she is the author of Pope Joan, which uh, is a book and a movie that uh, is going to be out in limited release here in the United States. Um, if you're in uh, Colorado, Washington, and California, namely San Francisco and Los Angeles, I think you'll be lucky enough to see it. Um, and uh, you can find out more about that at, uh, at uh, PopeJoan.com, I think is... Uh, the name of the website. Let me just make sure. Yeah, PopeJoan.com. Uh, wonderful, wonderful movie about a woman who had to spend her life as a man uh, because it was during the time when uh, women could not be educated according to the Bible. It was blasphemous to educate women. So she spent her entire life as a man so that she could learn. And uh, Pope Joan ultimately did become Pope. A very interesting story with a a tragic end, and um, if you can't manage to find the movie on the Internet, there are some bootleg copies out there. Uh, definitely see if it's uh, if it's playing in a city near you. Uh, it would be a gift to yourself to actually um, go see it. But uh, either way, uh, the author, Donna Wolf Oak Cross, will be uh, on the show in uh, September. And in October, we have other folks coming up, like Vandana Shiva, uh, the uh, author of Water Wars. We have Sister Joan Chittister, uh, who uh, has made, uh, you know, those controversial claims and about the inequality of women in the church and her demands for ordination uh, for women. We're going to have Clarissa Pinkola Estes coming up. Um, and uh, Jeannie Davis Kimball, uh, who wrote uh, Search for History's Hidden Heroines. So lots and lots of great uh, great folks coming up in, uh, in the coming weeks. So um, I think tonight I would like to close with just a, uh, a short prayer, and uh, then we will... Uh, we will hear the Sekhmet, uh, the Am Sekhmet, uh, beautiful song by uh, Abigail Spinner McBride, who was on tonight. So uh, let's just take a minute and focus and maybe take in uh, a deep breath. <sighs> just sort of let go of everything and begin to shift our focus and go within. Go to that place where we connect with the divine, with our mother our sacred self. This is a short little prayer from the Goddess Temple in Orange County. They send me one every month, and uh, this one goes like this. Great Cosmic Mother of all, rising and setting in all things eternally, my gratitude for my blessings is as wide as your horizon. Thank you, Mother, for our season of summer. Blessed be. Well, thank you, listeners, for being here, uh, and um, I look forward to you being back with me the last Wednesday of the month. And uh, let me say to you, may we all find our voice and use it in whatever way we can. Let us be her sacred roar. And with that thought, I'll leave you with the song, On Sekhmet. So good night, and thanks for tuning in.
Progressive brings you Flowetry with Flow. A tool called Name Your Price. Get a grip on your spending like an industrial vice. It's nice. Beats rolling the dice. I prefer brown rice. Don't carry dumbbells when you walk on thin Get insurance based on your budget with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Fios is not cable. We're wired differently, which means you can get the fastest Internet available with equal upload and download speeds from 50 to 500 megs. So you can upload 200 photos before your favorite song is finished. Click the ad and switch to Fios today to get our best offer ever.